you're listening to the Mind Devs Podcast, a podcast that creatively empowers you through exploration and curiosity, seeking wisdom from minds of the world. My name is Ryan Perez, a creative, curious, and ever-changing human on a mission to spread self-education and connection around the world by sitting down with fellow humans to share and reflect on impactful ideas that will grow your mind, body, and soul, developing the mind one experience at a time. Hello, Dev Nations, and welcome to today's episode. Today, we are joined by Dr. Matt Duar, who has spent the last two decades teaching research-based mindfulness and self-regulation tools so that we humans can live richer, more fulfilling lives. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm uh, super excited for our conversation today on stress and anxiety. I think it's a topic that doesn't get spoken about enough. So super excited to use this platform to share and spread your message and to learn. Um, So to get started, I kind of wanted to go ahead and uh, take a, just get to know a little bit more about you. Um, Could you share with us your personal story? I know you have a story about your own struggles with anxiety. And so if you could just go ahead and share your story on facing anxiety. Yeah. I always tell my students that uh, I've earned a black belt in stress and anxiety <laughs> the course of my life. And, and one of the reasons why I do the work that I do and I'm so passionate about doing it is because of my own personal story. And um, it really starts with by the time I was you know, five, my house had been visited by death, divorce and, and addiction. Wow. And wow. so I, I grew up in an environment where uh, emotional dysregulation was the norm. Mm -hmm. And my physiology learned to mirror the environment that I was in. And so I was just wired up as a kid who was very prone to anxiety all throughout my childhood, um, which impacted my ability to learn. I had to repeat two grades because Mm. my behavior and my academic performance was so poor. And it wasn't until my late teens, uh, like around my senior year of high school, where I actually came into contact with uh, some really interesting people and some really interesting books that really changed my life and and ultimately opened the door to learning more about meditation in general, but mindfulness specifically. And I would say that if I were to draw my life out on a timeline, the before and after moment, the, the pivotal before and after moment was that senior year of my high school uh, experience where I was able to just come in contact with fantastic people inside my school, but also outside the school. And my mind was just enriched by um, really powerful books and ideas. Wow. What, what made you go come across or what came across your path that said, hey, we're going to introduce you to new books? Was it your own personal interest or was it like a friend that introduced you? It's a really good question and it's a much longer story. Um, but, but basically, it's kind of like the way the universe works, works in mysterious ways. And it's almost as if there was some bigger plan. But I never read books, Ryan. I never read books. I was not academic. I, I played basketball. All I wanted to do was play basketball mm-hmm. and socialize. That's it. I didn't mm-hmm. care about school. And so one particular day, just very randomly, I decided to start reading um, Phil Jackson's book, Sacred Hoops. Okay. And uh, Phil Jackson's the coach of, of the Bulls in the 90s. And I was in high school in the mid to late 90s, right when the Bulls were in their prime. And I'm from Chicago area. So, oh, nice. <laughs> so it all comes together, right? And wow. so my dad had it on his nightstand and I had nothing to do. And I had passed the book, I don't know, 100 times walking through the room. And this one particular time, I just picked it up and I started reading it. Well, in the book, Phil Jackson talks about uh, Zen Buddhism and meditation, Mm. Zen meditation, and the impact that it has on, or or the impact that it had on on his his own kind of journey and his own experience and his philosophy of coaching and the way he understands basketball. And I just thought, this is so amazing. And in the course of him describing all of this, he mentioned the book that got him interested, which is called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Hmm. So at this point, my mom called on the phone and I told her I was reading a book and she was like, oh my gosh, you're reading a book. She's like, (laughs) well, if you're reading books, you need to go to Barnes and Noble and buy 
this book and it was some other book she wanted me to to get and I was like okay so I just went with it so I drive down the street this story will be short uh, oh, that's fine sure <laughs> it's your story I, I go down the street to Barnes and Noble I walk in I've never been in Barnes and Noble before mm-hmm. and I'm just wandering through and randomly Ryan my eye catches the book a single copy of Zen Mind Beginner's Mind that Phil wow. Jackson referenced in his book. Wow. And so I saw it and I was like, what? No <laughs> way. So I pulled, I wasn't even looking for that book. I was looking, for, looking for the other one. Out. Yeah. <laughs> so I pull it out and I sat down in, in the chair right by the, the coffee section of Barnes and Noble. And Ryan, I opened that book. And I started reading it. And I still remember the first line in, in the expert's mind. There are, or I'm sorry, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities in the expert's mind. There are few. And I remember reading that line and thinking, Whoa, wow. What does that even mean? Right. right? Yeah, I'm like trying to deconstruct right now. <laughs> and so wow. I just opened this book up and the only way I can describe it is that time disappeared I, I was completely immersed in the book. I was reading it till they were shutting down. So they, they, they kicked mm. me out. I buy the book, <laughs> I come home, I finish reading the book that night. Wow. And it's as if a switch inside of me was flipped that has never, was never turned on before that moment of opening that book and has mm. never been turned off since. And wow. many things in my life change. And it just speaks to the power of what the mission of, of, um, your kind of ethos and, and brand is, is the importance of books and ideas because it really can change your life. And so from that point on, I went and I also met a randomly, a Zen Buddhist monk. Um, I ended up dropping out of college my sophomore year and going to the other side of the world to live in Buddhist monasteries and oh, study cool. meditation. Nice. Um, and so the journey just <laughs> went nice. Forward. Wow, this this the true serendipity of life. It's just like, yeah, and I've never read books, and then, holy crap, now I really need to read this book. And you read that book in like a day, right? So it's like, wow, that's that's nuts. Yeah. So we you briefly mentioned a bit about your environment with you know dealing with the stress, and you know you were able to find uh, the books. You know that again, just the serendipity of life. It's that's crazy. That's thank you for sharing. It's such a great story. But so I guess I wanted you to sort of. So that we're all on the same page here, uh, sort of define stress and I guess why humans, I mean, I think collectively, I mean, I think it's fair to say, I think all humans face stress to some degree. So, and then you briefly mentioned environment. So what are some key factors in, in people's lives that sort of create stress? Such a good question. And there really isn't a simple answer. I think we need to start. I guess one of the most common ones, right? Like, especially transitioning from like that teenage like to like young adult and I think there's a lot of stress within that transition I feel like there's at least for me personally like I felt like there was never really that much guidance it's kind of like as parents it's like well you're 18 good luck it's like well I mean you know like I guess the stress is there too yeah 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 you're right stress is inherently a part of life in the most basic sense, kind of conceptually, if we talk about stress, stress is anything that moves an organism towards energy deficit. Let me say that again. Stress is anything that moves an organism towards energy deficit, right? So that's just being alive, just being alive, right? We're burning energy, which means being alive is stressful. We need Uh to eat, we need to sleep, we need to secure shelter, warmth, Mm -hmm. socialization, et cetera. So we're at a basic level, stress is inescapable and unavoidable, and that's okay. I think where stress becomes a problem or where stress becomes compounded and becomes distress is when our responses, when our learned behavioral responses to the inevitable stress of life make that stress worse, right? Mm, Yeah. So so there's the- Yes, there's the primary stress of life, and then there's the secondary stress of how we respond to that through our behaviors. And so one of the real important distinctions that I make, and this is really important for us culturally, is our our response to stress 
an unconscious reaction or a conscious skill. And if it's an unconscious reaction, that usually means we're, we're taking things externally, usually substances, to quiet the feeling of stress within ourselves. So the two most common examples of that in our culture are alcohol. Mm-hmm. Right? We use alcohol to bring our stress down, to numb ourselves to stress, or marijuana, um, or any sedative or depressant, right? It calms mm-hmm. yeah. the nervous system. And then on the other end of the continuum, if we feel the stress of not having enough energy to meet the demands of our environment, we take caffeine, we take stimulants. And so we're constantly relying on these outside in external strategies to manage stress. And I think it's really important, especially for young adults to, to learn to develop inside out or internal skills to deal with stress. And one of the ones that I obviously have spent a lot of time thinking about researching and teaching is mindful breathing. And I have a workbook that's coming out actually in just like two weeks called the mindful breathing workbook for teens. It's based on all the work I've done with high school students for about seven years, um, teaching them how our breathing can be leveraged as a tool to help us manage our stress in real time and create positive adaptations to stress rather than, creating bad habits that only compound our stress over time. I see. Okay. So, and so you would say there's like, obviously the bad sort of stress, but there is also a good side to stress as well. Correct. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. I I think stress is neither bad nor good in and of itself. It's ultimately, um, actually, that's not true. You could argue that some stressors just (laughs) overburden an organism and, but In, in the context that we're talking about here without getting too philosophical, it, bad stress is really determined by our response to stress. We make stress bad by mismanaging our response. Mm, okay. So, so then I guess follow up question, two things. One, what, how does, uh, what's the importance of emotional intelligence when it comes to managing your stress or EQ? Cause, cause that's a new concept. I, I recently learned over the last six months, like I had never heard of EQ or also known as emotional intelligence. And again, I think that's something else that doesn't get spoken about enough. And what is an exercise or two that we can expect from your new book coming out? If you don't mind sharing, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so emotional intelligence is having intelligence and skill related to how you deal with your internal state, right? Internally? Yeah. So at every moment of every day, like right now, if I were to say to you, Ryan, right now you're having an experience. Would you agree? Yes. What's that experience like right now in this moment? What does that experience feel like? Uh, Fun, a little nerve wracking, uh, a nice connection of flow and yeah. Good. So, so you, that, that was awesome. You have an awareness of all the different emotions that are arising within your experience right now. So the first skill of emotional intelligence is called self-awareness and self-awareness is really state awareness, awareness of your internal state. How am I feeling in this moment? If you don't consciously recognize like, what you're feeling in the present moment, you can't make any healthy changes, right? In order to change and manage your stress in a way that's positive, you have to first be aware of the fact that you are stressed, that you're moving towards a state of stress. And so emotional intelligence, really the foundation of it is this awareness of what is my experience like right now in this moment and what sorts of, um, things are causing that mm-hmm. right uh, what are the inputs in yeah. my environment um, what are my habitual responses to to feeling like this so when i feel anxious what do i typically do as a result of feeling anxious so self-awareness is just being aware of all of those things and then the the second core skill of emotional intelligence is what's called self-regulation and that's the ability to develop skills to change your state when you realize you're not in your sweet spot, right? 
Okay. So if, if I were to say to you, Ryan, on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being super high anxiety, you're going to freak out. Mm -hmm. Zero being you're sound asleep. And mm -hmm. five being you have the perfect balance between alertness and calm. Where is your state right now? Uh, I'd say a six, maybe, maybe seven. Good, good. And so what, what is your body telling you that leads you to, a, to, to designating a six or a seven? What are you feeling in your body that says, hey, I'm a six or a seven? Just came from my gut, but uh, I guess just the, the slight anxiety or stress of, of communicating with someone else, especially for someone. I would say I'm, I'm a, I've grown to be a bit more of an introvert throughout my university years because I, I studied computer science. So I'm an engineer. So I'm more analytical. So a lot of yeah. communication skills sometimes tend to go over my head. Plus, not to mention when you're interviewing someone, you have to sort of be real, of course, and then experience the conversation, but also have sort of questions ready and sort of like there's all this work that goes into yeah. creating a flow of uh, like an episode. Yeah. The flow of a conversation with someone yeah. you've never really talked to. Uh -huh. Espe yeah, especially with people you've never met. Cause it's like, well, you know, if it's like your family, well, you know, you know, talking points to just talk with them. Hey, I know, you know, my brother works or I know my mom does this. It's like, but if yeah. it's someone you don't know, it's just like, well, what can I say that will pique their interest, but will also like, like not, I don't know, bother them or offend them. You know, like, it's like, <laughs> how, like, where do you find that balance? You know? <laughs> so all of that's going on inside of you right now. Where do you feel that? All that anxiety about all those things you just said, where do you actually physically feel that in your body? I'd say either like my chest or like sometimes my stomach too. Like my stomach before interviews, but more so my chest during. This is beautiful. So, <laughs> so, right, you just practiced the first step of emotional intelligence. You just yeah. paid attention to and became aware of your emotion in your body. And you gave it a number. You said, I'm a six or a seven right now. You recognize that I'm not freaking out, but I'm not right in that sweet spot. Yeah. I'm, I'm elevated and I'm elevated because I have tension and uneasiness in my chest and in my stomach. Right. I mean, that's a beautiful practice right there. Listen, people who are watching Thank this you. and that's in my workbook is that exact activity is starting with just stopping and paying attention to your body and give yourself a score, zero to 10. Where are you? And, and what's your body telling you to give you that score, right? So that's self-awareness. Now, self-regulation is, let's say, Ryan, you said, I'm at an eight. I'm doing this interview with, with Dr. Matt and I'm at an eight and I'm moving up to a nine and I feel like I'm gonna freak out and you have to do something. So self-regulation is, is what do you do? And so maybe you just recognize that your breathing is really tense. And while we're talking, you just relax your shoulders. You let go of that tension in your upper uh, abdominals, right? And you just gently just breathe in the air. You don't try to force the air in. You don't try to take over your breathing. You just, just gently let the air come in and out. And now all of a sudden, Brian, you're at a, like a six, right? You yeah. drop down. Or maybe yeah, you're a little more calm. So that's self-regulation. That's the second part of emotional intelligence. And so why is this important in relation to stress? Because stress is a state that's moving us up, right? To an eight, a nine, or even a 10. Okay. And we have to have awareness that we're moving in that direction. And once we're aware that we're moving in that direction, we have skills that we've practiced to help us bring us back into the zone, which is four, five, six right? Four, five, six is the sweet spot of where we feel most like ourselves, where we have the most access to the better parts of our brain, our thinking, our creativity, our ability to learn. So emotional intelligence is indispensable yeah. when it comes to managing stress. Hmm. Okay. And what are, like, I guess, what are the key points? Uh, like, why should people go ahead and, and check out your book or, you know, like, uh, if they're, yeah, I mean, why should people go out and just check out your book? I think I think young adults, I think adults could benefit from the book as well. But but obviously, the target audience is young adults because I've spent so much time with young adults over the last twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, I think the book is really valuable because it really approaches emotional intelligence through the lens of breathing. 
how can we use breathing specifically to become more aware of our emotions and our stress levels? And then how can we use our breathing to change and manage our emotions when they're going uh, awry, when they're going too high or they're going too low? What are things we can do to manage and regulate our breathing to bring our whole physiology back into balance? And so the workbook is really a guide on how to do that and why it's so important. I see. Okay. And so when stress sort of hits like that six or seven, um, I, I mean, are there good times as well where you can sort of use that extra energy to your benefit? Like maybe like, because uh, I, I try to also think like maybe stress can be good when you have sort of like a, like a marathon or a sprint. It's like, well, now you have this extra energy in your chest. So maybe stress could be a good thing for like more what, physical activities, if you will. Yeah, um, that's a really common question. And the research seems to suggest that anxiety never helps us perform better. <laughs> right? <Okay. laughs> so, so um, you know, yes, yes, you can, yes, you can do things to, I mean, physical movement is probably the single best strategy mm-hmm. for increasing resilience to becoming stressed out. So physical fitness makes one more resilient to stress because fitness is an adaptive response to stress. When you go run a mile, that's stressful and your body adapts and that adaptation is fitness. When you bench press, let's say you bench press 250 pounds, the the adaptation in your muscles to that load of weight is strength, right? And so when you're physically fit, you become uh, more emotionally and physically resilient. The other thing that physical activity does is that when you are stressed, when you're climbing up that scale to six, seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah. um, the way the nervous system is designed is that stress is the experience of stress is designed to make you move. It's designed to get all the energetic resources of your body to the largest muscles as quickly as possible, so that you can either defend yourself. Or run away. That's what you're designed to do, yeah, right? That's fight or fight. Yeah. yeah, that's why your heart rate goes up. That's mm-hmm. why your stomach starts to kind of turn because all the blood is leaving your stomach. Because who cares about digestion if you have to fight uh-huh. something in this moment? So the worst thing you can do when you're stressed out, like a, an eight, nine, or ten, super high, is to sit still. Physical activity will burn some of that energy off, but that doesn't mean that you need anxiety to be productive, either physically or intellectually. So no, I don't think it helps because you can run a marathon or um, I do a lot of work with athletes around mindfulness and and breathing. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the misconceptions is that they think they have to, um, they have to get themselves super amped up before they get into a competition. And it's just, it's not true. Of course, you don't want to go in flat yeah. to a competition. That's true. Um, but you don't want to be burning unnecessary energy um, before a competition um, because that's going to lead to lead to that very typical adrenaline dump. Yeah. And then like overperformance, if you will. So you maybe overshoot on the shot or you over, you overstep some motion or something and you, you turn the wrong way and now you just hurt your, yourself while yeah. Performing. Yeah. yeah. And you oh. see, you, you see that all the time with athletes in like championship games where it's a big game, often mm-hmm. the play will be very sloppy at the beginning of the game. And it's because oh. everyone is so jumpy and so overreactive because the nervous system is so overprimed that people just need to settle down and just get into a groove. Mm. Okay. I see. And so um, our stress, stress and anxiety are two different things, right? So stress is like sort of like how we said, it's like just a thing that can be good or bad. And I'm assuming anxiety is like the bad side of stress. Is that correct? Yeah. I would say there's a lot of different definitions for anxiety. I think the most useful general kind of definition is that anxiety is a general state of what's called hypervigilance. 
And what I mean by that is go back to that scale of zero to 10. Okay. Mm -hmm. If the upper end of that scale, eight, nine, and 10, that's what's called hypervigilance. Vigilance is alertness, right? So when, when someone is anxious or stressed, it's increasing alertness in the body and in the mind. Mm -hmm. And so anxiety is like this general state where you're walking around stuck in eight, nine, or 10. Okay. okay. And so often, um, often anxiety will be triggered by a particular environmental cue, like with young people, let's say math class, so common. I've worked with so many students who have anxiety around math tests. I felt you my like heart starting to race. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't believe how many kids are anxious about math. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anxiety in that particular situation is, is when they enter into the math classroom under the, maybe in general, but maybe specifically on test day, they enter into a general state of hypervigilance. They're just stuck in eight, nine, yes. and 10, and it clouds their thinking. Um, it, it makes them easily distracted, etc. Now, general anxiety, like general anxiety disorder or generalized anxiety disorder is a, a when you're stuck in that state, regardless of environmental cues, hmm. anywhere you go, anything you're doing, you're just stuck in the state of eight, nine, 10. And, and that's actually what I was diagnosed with. Uh, I think it was my junior or senior year of high school was general anxiety dis- disorder. Um, because I was having these bouts where I would go a week, two weeks, and I woke up anxious I ate break, uh, breakfast anxious. I went to school mm-hmm. anxious. I came home anxious. I went to bed mm-hmm. anxious. And it was just constantly stuck in, in, it's like being in a car yeah. and the RPMs in the car. And it's like okay. the foot is on the gas and the okay. RPMs are just redlining the whole time. I see. And it was about, and it, was it like your mind was fixated on something specific that made you anxious or was it just anything? It was anything. It was free anything. floating. Okay. Anything could pop into my mind and I would fixate on that until a new thing would pop into my mind and I would fixate on that. Okay. Cause I was like, well, maybe I have that. Cause there are times where like I focus on something and like, that's the only thing I see for like days, like, but okay. So it's, it's, it's really more, okay. General. I see. And so I, I love how you mentioned the example of when you go in for Cause I was picturing it right in my head. Like you go in for the example of, you study up for an exam, you know, you're studying, you're putting in your, your time. And then the day of the exam, you reach that eight, nine uh, or 10. By the way, what do you call that meter or bars? Is there like, do you have a name for that? Um, it, I typically map it onto what's called the, the window of tolerance or the zone of regulation, which is a bunch of psychological okay. jargon. Um, okay. So I just call it the, the, the scale of your internal state. Okay. So yeah, with the scale of your internal state and it's like, I totally understand when you're going in for the exam, you're like, I studied, but now I can't remember any of the equations that I, I'm trying to recall. Or your palms start to get sweaty just trying to, you know, use the, the pencil and the eraser. And you're like, oh, your hand even starts to shake. Like I, I studied music for a couple of years. So I, I totally, I'm, I'll never forget my first performance on like a snare drum, just like a regular drum with sticks. My ha- my right hand was shaking like crazy. I couldn't play the part. I It was it was shaking too much. like And it was like a, a roll. So your hand has to be nice and like, smooth and like straight when you do the roll, yeah. and i'll never forget like my hand was just shaking and i had never experienced that throughout my practice before um are there any other small simple either habits or exercises you recommend um i know you mentioned of course breathing when you when you're in the middle you know of your exam or even preparing going into your classroom do you recommend maybe f- like focusing maybe on something that helps calm you down perhaps or it's it's again you're asking phenomenal questions ryan i think if you if you only use strategies once stress and anxiety have started you've waited too long that that's not a sustainable long-term approach i think what you want to start with is preventative things you want to do things that are going to So I I call these lifestyle decisions or lifestyle design. You need to design your life in such a way that creates a general level of background balance in your system. 
because if you don't have that, you're going to be more susceptible to tipping into stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so the simplest thing when when I work with uh, students and even when I work with adults is uh, the sleep wake cycle. Are you going to bed and waking up at the same time every day? Because that's the most important thing that will determine when your body is trained and habituated to be alert and when it's trained and habituated to be calm and go to sleep. And what we see in our culture is that there's a total that that regulation pattern of being alert when we wake up through midday and slowly declining in the afternoon and then hitting a low before bed. And then we effortlessly fall into sleep and then the cycle starts again. That's the natural cycle. But what we see in our culture is we're so dysregulated with our habits. We so poorly manage our lifestyle that we wake up tired instead of alert. And we go to bed anxious instead of calm. And when do we tend to use substances to manage our internal state the most. In the morning, we use caffeine because we're waking up tired Mm. instead of alert. And so we have to close the gap. And at the end of the day, we use sedatives and depressants because we're anxious and we need to be calm. And so we take those things to close the gap. Mm. And so if, as long as that's going on, you're gonna keep, you're gonna be more prone to dysregulation. You're gonna be more prone to stress and anxiety. And so the the first foundational consideration is designing your life in a way where you are getting good quality sleep and you're waking up and going to bed at about the same time every day. And this is something that's very hard for young adults because their their lifestyle and their internal hormone, everything's just all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, it's very hard to, to create effective long-term stress management protocols when you aren't regulated in that basic way of the sleep-wake cycle. And then you can add on top of that, getting enough physical activity during the day, eating well, getting meaningful social connection, so on and so forth. So all of that's prevention. Then when you talk about intervention, stress intervention, so not just preventing it, but once okay. I'm I'm out of four, five, six, and now I'm stressed yeah, out. Okay. I think, um, as I said before, I think breathing is is the best strategy because you can all you're always already doing it, right? You're, you're, yes. I, I, I always yes. say to my every students, time you mention breathing, I I realize I'm breathing. I'm like, all right, take one more breath. <laughs> <laughs> I tell students, I ask them, I said, raise your hand if you left your your breath at the last class that you were at, right? <laughs> so. It, the beautiful thing about breathing is it's the first thing that responds to stress. So how we live is how we breathe and how we breathe represents how we live. It's a big cycle. And our since our breath is always with us, it becomes a perfect opportunity to, to change our internal state through our breathing. Okay. So that's, that's one. Um, I also said physical activity is super helpful, but you can't always move. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you're taking that math test, you can't get up and start doing jumping jacks or just yeah. rip out some pushups. Or <laughs> yeah, correct. Unfortunately, uh, not not yet. <laughs> I mean, maybe you could work that out with your professor or uh, a teacher. Yeah, like, hey, if I get anxious, I'm just going to rip out like yeah. 50 pushups. Um, but uh, so so there's movement, and then there's also um, Dr. Andrew Huberman's done a lot of really, really interesting work with the connection between vision and stress and our internal state and how our vision really, as we become stressed out, uh, starts to narrow. And we go into what's called foveal vision, where our eyes and our gaze focus on a single point in space and time, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we can do is when we notice that we're getting stressed out, we can open our peripheral vision. We can allow vision, our eyes to relax. And so one exercise to that end is right now just to sit where you are Mm -hmm. and open your awareness to your entire visual field, including your body sitting in it. So try to take on, keep your eyes just 
Don't have your eyes scan around. Just have your eyes like a soft gaze and you're taking into account everything in your visual field at once, including your own body, right? So everything kind of zones out. That sends a direct signal to your nervous system to calm down, right? This is why looking at a horizon is calming and soothing. When you look out into the distance, right? Your eyes go into uh, like panoramic vision. Yes, wow. And it calms the nervous system. And, And so one of the things when you're on a phone all day on social media, staring and focusing your eyes, Mm-hmm. And then on a computer and focusing your eyes, you're creating background ambient levels of stress hormone in your body. And so it's like your stress bucket is just filling all day because your eyes are focusing so hard. Oh, okay. Because- instead of, instead of using the peripheral. Right. Which, which, which yeah. is why you need to take breaks, eye breaks throughout the day. So set up your computer by a window so you can occasionally sit back. Like I've got two huge windows right here and lots of trees in the backyard and a nice view. And I can step back and look out the window and just let my vision open up. And it's soothing. It calms the nervous system down. So those are the real three main strategies, breathing, movement, and vision. Oh, wow. All right, cool. We'll definitely have to try those. Like, and I love like right there. That was so, oh, wow. Yeah. When you look into horizons, yeah, this is the scientific reason why, you know, uh, horizons are proven to lower stress. It's like, well, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I guess, so now another two questions. Um, what are some resources you personally found that you can recall from growing up or even now that helped you develop your emotional intelligence? And then um, what are, what are some ways you found and I guess this could be part of one of those three, but uh, what are some ways you found to sort of deal with social anxiety and speaking with, again, I think more importantly so, but uh, for when you're trying to speak to someone you don't really know, because I think when you speak to family members, friends, you have some sort of an anchor of, yeah, I can mention this, or we're friends through, through percussion. So let me mention percussion, but it's like, if it's someone you don't know, what is something you recommend to converse with them yeah you're 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 on the money on on target with these uh with these questions the the first developing emotional intelligence here's what all the research suggests emotional intelligence is learned by being seen meaning adults teach emotional intelligence with their emotional intelligence. Okay. It's very hard to learn emotional intelligence in the absence of at least one person who's emotionally intelligent, who you can be around, a mentor of some kind, a therapist, a coach, a teacher, a parent, a family member, someone. And so all the research in emotional intelligence shows that the person of influence in any situation dictates and establishes the emotional tone and climate for everyone else. And so if we want people to be emotionally intelligent, we have to have people who are in positions of influence to demonstrate emotional intelligence themselves, because when they do, then people calibrate their nervous system to that. That's the beauty of what we are uh, as social creatures is that we're constantly unconsciously calibrating our nervous system to mirror the nervous system of the person we're with. And if someone who has influence over us and they have a dysregulated nervous system, we're going to pick that up and we're going to mirror that back. We're just going to absorb it. Stephen Porges, Dr. Stephen Porges calls this neuroception, like perception, but it's uh-huh. neuroception. It's not cognitive. It's with the basic nervous system itself. We're just reading other people's nervous system. And so when we're around someone who's maybe a parent or a coach or a teacher or a mentor who's full of love and life and laughter and patience and kindness and calm, we just absorb that. Our nervous system just attunes to that. And then we pull some of that intelligence in and we start to model it. So it's emotional intelligence. We can talk about it all day intellectually. 
But when it comes to actually embodying it and becoming it, we really have to be around emotionally intelligent people, which is why I'm from the field of education. And this is why I'm always pushing that we really, really, really need to make sure that the educators we're putting in front of students and the coaches we're putting in front of young athletes, that they have some basic level of self-awareness and self-regulation. Because if they don't, they're going to be a dysregulating force for young adults and, and children. And that's that's why the world is the way it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like you have, I mean, you know, I mean, we've all gone to school. If you have 30 kids on a football team and the coach is like a hothead, it's like now those 30 kids who look up to this person are going to say, oh, okay, this is how I need to react. Even whether whether they know it's good or bad, right? Like they're going to subconsciously like just sort of go to that. Huh. Yeah. I'll yeah. never forget the, the story of Tony Dungy, who coached um, the Colts, and he coached, I believe, Tampa Bay. And, and he won, won a Super Bowl um, with Peyton Manning. And he came in the first day to, to, to the Colts when he left Tampa Bay. And I'm going to butcher the story, but this is the gist of it. He pulled the team together. And he said, if any of you need a coach who's going to scream at you and swear at you and, and threaten you, et cetera, um, if any of you need that to be motivated and play at your best, let me know and we'll find you a new team. Because I'm not going to cuss. You're not going to cuss. No one's going to scream. No one's going to yell. And it was just like, that's it. And so, the, you know, then you get a team that's yeah. like, oh, we don't need all of that noise, all that wasted emotional noise. Energy, yeah. To energy to execute. You can get the job done just by talking. And that's one of the things that's, I'm going to go off on a quick tangent here. One that's of the things fine. that I've always the way is um, I'm an educator, but I've also been a coach in a, in a number of different sports. And I don't know where, when, or how, or why we, we disconnected athletics, especially young adult athletics, from learning and education. And how coaches are able to behave in ways on the field or the court and say things and say things in a way that a teacher never would in a classroom. And I don't see how it's any different, right? Hmm. A coach yeah. needs to think about himself or herself as, as uh, an educator, mm-hmm. as someone who, who's got students, people yeah, who are on. trying to learn, yeah. right? learn a defense, learn an offense, learn a play, et cetera. And what we know about the brain and learning is no one learns better when they're put into a threatening situation. No one learns better that way yeah. with fear and, and anxiety. So tangent yeah. over. no i mean it it totally makes sense like they're there part of the school part of the university they're there to help guide these students i mean what are teachers they're there to guide students and and share knowledge with them and and guide them on their quest for knowledge throughout the 12 years you know just like coaches you know it totally makes sense what's your what's your uh, favorite sport to play or yeah I, i grew up playing basketball i was pretty good um i was all area in high school and the fact that I was 5'7", I always thought I was going to play <laughs> big time D1 and uh, wanted to play in, in the pros. And then when my, um, my, uh, my growth hormones didn't cooperate, then <laughs> <laughs> I just peaked out at 5'7". That, that was kind of the end of, um, of basketball. Uh, I used to, so I was obsessed with basketball growing up. It was really, to tell you the truth, a way of self-regulating and building an identity. And if I didn't have basketball growing up, mm-hmm. I think I would have been in, in, in trouble. Yeah. Um, it gave me, it gave me something to feel good about, which was really important. Um, but since then I I've become a runner. And mm-hmm. so I, I run a lot. I don't play basketball anymore. I just have had too many injuries from, playing in my younger days. And so now I just enjoy getting outside and just moving my body, cycling, nice. running, lifting, um, you name it. Okay. Nice. Thank you. What are, and then uh, I'm curious as to what are you currently learning now? 
So <laughs> I got I got to like br- brace myself here because I'm so yeah, excited about this. Is I'm in a um, I'm kidding. Get excited. Third. That's okay. <laughs> it's fine. I'm from a kid who had to repeat two grades. Mm-hmm. So remember that. Um, I'm I'm right now going to uh, on to get my third master's degree um, in breathing applied breathing behavior science, and it is fascinating. I have this machine, and if we ever talk again, Ryan, or we can talk off um, off the podcast at some point, I have this machine here. It's called a Capno Trainer. It measures its breathing biofeedback. And it measures your breathing behavior in real time and how your breathing behavior impacts your chemistry. And so I can hook someone up to this and they can breathe into this Uh measuring how um, their carbon dioxide levels and, and their pH in their blood. And so when we look at the way you inhale, the way you exhale, how the rate of your breathing, the volume of your breathing, the mechanics of your breathing, and how all of those things impact whether or not it's bringing stress on or calming your system in real time. And so you can then see on a screen what breathing behaviors bring on symptoms like stress and anxiety and what breathing behaviors help you calm down and become regulated in that four, five, six, uh, four, five, six zone and so this program is just, it is absolutely blowing my mind. And so I, I thought I knew a lot about breathing already, right? I wrote a book about it. Yep. <laughs> and now I'm doing this program and I'm realizing I was just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I've always been interested in breathing and, and like, I think a couple of years ago. So a quick thing about me, I'll go off on a tangent as well. Um, so I've done a lot of uh, music and percussion. And so I did what's called DCI, which is like the professional marching band, if you will, where you travel around the country and you perform at different stadiums. And they did research, I think in 2013 and 2014 about breathing and how uh, our breathing when, when we're marching on the field with like these heavy drums are like super insane at like the caliber of like over pro- professional athletes and whatnot. I'm just like, whoa, that's so insane and cool at the same time. And and they just did a whole bunch of research on that. And I just remember thinking, I thought that was really cool how um, you can learn so much about the human body through just through your breath, you know, yeah. like, whoa. That's, that's, that's pretty cool that you had that experience. Um, so you got to travel the country? Um, yeah. So, so it's like the, we just call it the professional marching man, if you will. We, we have a bus. And so, but before the, the traveling, we spend, I think it's like, three or four weeks, 12 hour days, just rehearsing outside on a football field, performing, uh, practicing and performing and learning the show. And then we get on a bus, we go perform. And then like every other day, it's either, if it's not a performance, we train for 12 hours and then next day is performance. And yeah. And yeah. yeah. Like the fact that we're like having to move around while also performing on the instruments and carry the instruments, they found like the, the, what is it? The, what's the word it's escaping me the, the respiratory system or whatever is like like in overload mode or whatever and they found you you burn like uh three to five thousand calories within a day of doing like that day to day so i remember eating i think five meals a day during that during doing yeah that. i bet I mean, I mean it's it's super stressful performing but it's also very stressful um like you said carrying that drum around and and the thing about breathing is it's it's exquisitely sensitive to stress um and so everything everything you do everything you feel the center of it is breathing you can go days without water weeks or months without food but you can only go moments without breathing it's so central to our to our physiology and our life and we don't realize that we just think that it's this it's just this thing that's happening in the background. It's so normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's constant and it's um, similar across people that we're all just kind of mechanically breathing in this predetermined pattern all the time. Mm-hmm. And when you hook someone up to a machine like this and they get to see their breathing in real time, they start to realize, um, as one person said to me when I was uh, working with them and they were hooked up, they said, I feel like you're peering into my soul. <laughs> right? I mean, wow. That, <laughs> yeah. Because just by looking at someone's yeah. breath, you can tell 
how they've learned to breathe is how they've learned to trust their nervous system. And that says everything about your life. If you trust your body and your body's ability to deal with stress, or if you get scared when there's stress. And it's so that all of that shows up in the basic mm-hmm. physiological imprint or fingerprint of breathing. Um, so anyways, wow. I get and now I can tell you geek out about on this too. It's, it's awesome. Now I wanted to go ahead and recap as well. Do you happen to have a copy of your book with you just to share with the audience? Uh, oh, I've got you a can go grab it. Should, should I go grab go it? Go grab it. Share it. Yeah, totally, man. Just making this book. Yeah, people spend a lot of time trying to uh, create their books, and and you know it's like almost their child or their baby. So definitely want to go ahead and share. I mean, for anybody who's written a book, you know how it is just trying to create this thing and it's finally there. So excited to go ahead and and check it out, see what it's about. Here we go. (laughs) There we are. Nice. The Mindful Breathing Workbook for Teens. Awesome. I just, I just got a box from the publisher of, of 20 the other evening, and nice. it was the first time I got to see it in its finished physical form. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm so excited because like I've been saying, um, I really think the book has potential to hopefully help some, some young adults out and mm-hmm. even some adults. Some adults well. too, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's super excited. I know that comes out uh, in August. What August day 1st. August. Oh, August 1st. Okay. I was thinking 11th. Okay. August 1st. It's available for uh, pre-order right now on Amazon as well. Okay, cool. And then where can uh, people reach out to you if they want to reach out to you, get more information about you? Yeah. um, I'm uh, Dr. Matt DeWar on Instagram and then Matt DeWar, Ed D, E-D-D on uh, LinkedIn. And those are really the, the two social platforms that I use the most. All right, cool. And then uh, what, uh, what can I do to add value to you? Um, just keep one, one, just keep doing what you're doing because this podcast and it seems like just your personal interests, um, I think are really important. And, and I think as a young adult, you have the ability to positively impact your peers and you're doing something pretty amazing. So first and foremost, keep being you and keep doing what you're doing. And I think that that's huge. That serves the greater good. Um, in terms of supporting my work, um, just as the book comes out, feel free to share it with your community. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's it. And I'll, I'll continue to, to support your platform as well. I, I really do think it's awesome that we need more young adults doing the things that, that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time. Just taking the time to talk today. I look forward to meeting you again. Me as well. Take care, Ryan. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please leave a review and let us know what you learned, what you loved. Wishing you great success. Continue developing the mind one experience at a time.